0: So we turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 22. We're making our way through this chapter of late. Remember in the opening verses of 2 Samuel 22, David testified, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. And then what we saw last week, verses 5 through 20, was David... Reflecting in a dramatic, poetic, even fantastic way on that delivering. David said, I was in dire straits, no question. And David said, From those dire straits, I, I cried out with a dire plea, an urgent plea. And David said, God responded. Remember, the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because God was angry. Remember, God rode in to David's rescue. God saved him. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. So that's what we saw last week, verses 5 through 20. That was David describing in that dramatic, poetic way how God... Had come to his rescue just in time. That brings us to this week. We're going to pick up where we left off at verse 21. In these verses, 21 down through 32, that's as far as I'll read. In these verses, David has more to say about God saving him, has more to say about what God is like, this God who had saved him, and also has some things to say about what he himself is like, David. And in both cases, David's conduct and God's character, we might be a little surprised by some things that David has to say. So let's listen to it first. Let me read it for us, and then we'll go back and take a closer look. So 2 Samuel 22, beginning now at verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? So, this is the word of God. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for David who wrote these words. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who carried him along so that these words are the word of God. We pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice. Speak, O Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Humility is one of those Christian virtues that's easy to caricature, it's easy to distort. I suppose that's true of all of them, but there's something about humility. Humility can easily be distorted in such a way that you think it means that you never, ever dare talk about yourself. And then if you do ever dare talk about yourself, the only thing that you're allowed to say about yourself, so goes the caricature, is that there's nothing good in you, nothing special about you, nothing admirable about you, look away, there's nothing to see here, that kind of thing. You may know someone who's bought into that distortion of the idea of humility. It could be that you struggle with it yourself because you had that drummed into your head when you were a kid. Humility means never talk about yourself, but if you do, just criticize yourself. Drag yourself down. And then... We turn to 2 Samuel 22. It's one of the things I love about this poem, the way way it corrects us and, and warns us of the distortions of Christian virtues. Here in this poem, here's David, on his knees before God, humble before God. And then he starts to talk about himself. And not only that, But I mean, he starts to talk about himself in undeniably exalted terms. And brothers and sisters, let's be clear, this is humility. Even what we've got here, in our portion of the poem today, this is humility. Why? Because this is David on his knees before God magnifying what the grace of God has made him to be. And how God by that same grace, was pleased to honor what he had made David to be. And that's beautiful. So no question, we've got some work to do today in order to understand what David's saying here, including what he's saying about himself. But it's worth it doing that work because it's going to help us to understand how we can magnify the grace of God as well. And that's always worth it. So let's walk through our passage today. I'll note what we've got here in these verses. I'll break it up into a few sections as we go. So we'll do a walk through, and then when we've done that, we'll reflect upon what's here. Think about what we can learn from it. So let, let's take a walk through. Let's break it up into a few sections. Verses 21 through 25, we'll call David's Integrity. Verses 21 through 25, David's integrity. Listen to it again. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness according to my cleanness in his sight. So David's saying a number of things in there. He's making several claims about himself. First, he's saying that he's somebody who knew God's word, right? He knew what God's word required of him. Second, he's also saying that he'd walked in obedience to that word, He had walked in righteousness. And then third, he's also saying that God had rewarded him according to that righteousness. It mattered in God's sight that David had kept God's commandments in the way that he did, and he he honored him, he vindicated him as one who had done so. So that's what it boils down to here, David's integrity. He knew God's word, and he kept it. And God blessed him for it. David's integrity. So that's our first section here. Let's keep going. Here's a second section. Verses 26 through 28 we'll call God's character. 26 through 28 we'll call God's character. In other words, what is God like? The fact that God had blessed David like this, that he had raised David from death and sent his enemies down into death. What does that say about God? Well, look at verse 26. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people... But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. So what David's saying in there is that there's something fitting about the way God deals with people. There's a match between what people are like and what God is like in the way that he deals with them. And there are four elements in there especially that we can notice. Four of them. Merciful to the merciful, blameless to the blameless, pure to the pure, and then, perhaps surprisingly, seemingly tortuous to the crooked. Those four, right in a row. Now, there are some things in there that we need to stop and explain. First of all, the first of them, merciful to the merciful, that does not mean that when people act mercifully toward others, well, then their merciful conduct somehow earns God's mercy in return. That can't be, then it wouldn't be mercy. Doesn't mean that. David's not saying that. David's simply saying that, yes, God deals kindly. He deals mercifully with those who trust in him. And yes, they manifest that trust in him by following through on what his word says about being merciful and kind. Toward others. That's the idea. God is merciful with those who trust in Him. And because they are a people who trust in Him, well, it's going to show. It's going to show in the way that they exhibit mercy and kindness toward others. Merciful to the merciful. Now, what about the next two elements? Blameless to the blameless and pure to the pure. Those two might throw us as well. That does not mean that God deals in a way that's blameworthy and impure with everyone else. Of course it doesn't. All of God's ways are blameless and pure, all of God's ways with everybody, friend and foe alike. Now, David's saying that God keeps his promises to those who trust in him and who manifest that trust in him with obedience of their own. Because it would be blameworthy and impure if God failed to keep his promises to them. But he never has failed them. And he never will. And so he's blameless in that way. He's pure in that way. Following through on every word that he's promised those who trust in him. Following through on his promise to honor those who are devoted to him. Turns out he's Devoted to us first. So blameless to the blameless, pure to the pure. And then what about the last one? Where David says, with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. Just to be clear, a brief word about vocabulary. The word here is not torturous. With another R, as in torturing them. The word is tortuous which means characterized by twists and turns. Tortuous, not torturous. So David's point is that people who rise up in opposition to God and who manifest that opposition to God by departing from his word into their own crooked, twisting, turning paths, well... God deals with them in a way that's going to seem inscrutable to them. God's going to deal with them in a way that seems to be twisting and turning too. And that's because in their crookedness, they don't have eyes to see. They don't have hearts to understand. In His grace, God could give them those eyes and hearts, but often He does not. And not only that, but they don't have God's Word in hand to help them make sense of things including his own way. It's as if God says to them, oh, you want to do twists and turns? You want to do crooked? You want to leave me behind and turn any old way you want to go? God says, okay, I can do twists and turns. I can deal with you in a way that looks upside down and downside up and backwards and forwards and backwards again to you because I can leave you to your own resources and devices to try to understand me and my ways, and you will not. And you will not have my own steadfast, steady, clear, and clarifying promises to steady you and to lead you into understanding because you will have left those behind. So all four of those are true of God, merciful to the merciful, blameless to the blameless, pure to the pure, seemingly tortuous to the crooked. So that's why I say what David's getting at here is that there's something fitting about the way God deals with people. And verse 28 is the clincher. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Those who kneel down in humility before God, sure enough, God reaches down and lifts them up. And those who rise up in pride against God, one way or another, in his time, in his way, God topples them and brings them down. God's character, that's what this God is like, who's dealt with David in the merciful way that he has. Again and again, God's character. So we started with David's integrity. That was the first section. We made our way to God's character. That was the second. Here's one more verses 29 through 32, we'll call rejoicing in the Lord. Verses 29 through 32, rejoicing in the Lord. Look at these verses again. Verse 29 For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And then this, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? That, that last verse, verse 32, ushers us into the next section of the poem, but I couldn't help bring it before us today. Who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? So here David is saying, this God who's so wonderful, who's so glorious as I've just described, he's mine, and I'm his. He gives me light to live by. He gives me strength to serve by. This God who's so wonderful, there's no God like him. And David's saying, I'm not the only one who knows it. Anyone who takes refuge in this God finds him to be this kind of God. A God unlike any other. Rejoicing in the Lord. So that's what we've got here, verses 21 down through 32. David's integrity, God's character, and then David rejoicing in this God who is glorious like this. So there's a walkthrough. That's what we've got here. Now let's take a step back and reflect on all of this. And we do have some work to do here, as I said when we got started. We might be a little surprised by what David has to say here. We've already addressed the whole God as seemingly tortuous issue. So we've made some headway when it comes to what David says about God, and that's good. But we've still got some work to do now when it comes to what David says about David. That opening section in our passage this morning, David's integrity, verses 21 to 25, it's perfectly understandable if that part of the passage right out of the gate gives us pause. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, David says. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. And David keeps going from there and drives the point home. It is not uncommon for Bible readers to feel a little bit of heartburn when they read these verses. I think we can say it's a case of double heartburn. I don't know if that's an officially recognized medical condition, but we'll go ahead and make it up spiritually. Double heartburn. Double pause. In other words, there are two reasons why David's language here might give us pause. David's language about his own righteousness and about how God rewarded him for it. The first reason is, David's language doesn't seem to be true to the record of David's own life that we've been following for months now in First and Second Samuel. We've seen David fall into sin and fall deep and hard. How on earth can he possibly say these things about himself. This poem may have originated before the episode with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, but still it's included here at the very end of the book, and so it looks back on a whole lifetime of David's deliverances, and we know something of what that lifetime involved. So that's the first reason doesn't seem to match what we know about David's life. The second reason is David's language doesn't seem to be true to the gospel. At first glance, this does look like David is claiming that God saved him because of David's own good works, and that doesn't seem to be true to the gospel. Because the message of grace is just that. It's It's a gospel of grace. The good news is that we're saved by God's grace, received through faith as a free gift, and not on the basis of our own righteousness and cleanness and obedience and blamelessness as a wage, as something that we've somehow earned in a transaction with God. So what gives? Two reasons why we might pause in reading these verses. One, what about David's own life? Two, What about the gospel of grace? I'll say this first of all as we reflect upon these things. A brief word, a preliminary word, but I think it's worth noticing. Don't forget this is poetry. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find the poet using strong language, lofty and soaring language, even about himself. I'm not saying that David's stretching the truth. I'm simply saying, remember what kind of literature we're reading here. We get it when David uses lofty language about God. Well, he's free to use lofty language about people, including himself. Remember, we got a glimpse of that a while back, early on in 2 Samuel, when David lamented in poetic form over Saul and Jonathan. Remember that? We read that poem, and David had some things to say in that poem about Saul and Jonathan that we had to stop and think about. Poetry's like that. When you, when you write a song, you just might write some lyrics that take some truth and fly with it. It's still true. It's just a soaring way of expressing that truth. And that's okay. That's good. That's poetry. That's songwriting. And that's what this is here. So that's a preliminary point. That's a by the way. But let's bear it in mind. Now, taking on our, our questions today, how does this fit with the record of David's life? How do we understand what he's saying about himself here? Well, we need to be clear. David is not saying that he lived a life of perfect righteousness from start to finish. We know that he did not. David knew it too. David's not even saying that in his best moments he was entirely free from the stain of sin. We know that he was not. No sinner ever was or is. So David's not saying either of those things. He's not making either of those claims. What he is saying about himself here is that, yes, he had lived a life that was largely a life of devotion to God. And that in those situations, here's where it gets focused. In those situations in which David needed to be delivered from some enemy, in which he needed to gain the victory on the field of battle over some enemy, well, yes, he had conducted himself with integrity as someone who had sided for God as someone who was standing up for God, against the enemies of God, and God was pleased to reward, pleased to vindicate David for that devotion. That's the idea. Again, it's not a sweeping claim to have lived a sinless life. Not even a claim to have been entirely sin-free in his best moments. I'll say it again, what David is saying here is that he lived a life that was largely a life of devotion to God and that in those situations in which he needed to be delivered from this enemy or that one, he'd, he'd shown himself to be someone who had sided with God and God was pleased to reward him, to vindicate him for that devotion. That's the idea. Remember those two times back in 1 Samuel when David had the chance to kill Saul but he didn't? That is a perfect picture of what he's claiming about himself here. David knew God's word in those instances, right? That you don't strike the Lord's anointed. And David kept that word. He didn't strike Saul even though he had the chance. And God was pleased to vindicate David as a faithful servant by rescuing him anyway. That's a perfect picture of what David's talking about here. And just in case you're wondering if David's thinking and writing a little too highly of himself here in our passage, well, just remember, first of all, this is Holy Scripture. This is divinely breathed out, so it's got to be true. But second of all, elsewhere in Scripture, David is assessed by others in similar, remarkable, lofty terms. This is from 1 Kings 15. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to this one verse 1 Kings 15, verse 5, it says this. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, comma, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That's 1 Kings 15, verse 5. So what David is saying about himself in 2 Samuel 22 and saying by the extraordinary, inspiring ministry of the Holy Spirit, it is what Scripture affirms elsewhere about Him. So, yeah, I know, it, it's striking language to read, especially to read somebody saying something like this about himself, but it's true. And when you hone in on precisely what David's claiming here, you can see that it's true, you can see that it's perfectly consistent with everything that we've been seeing about David for months, including one episode of a very deep, dark sin. So, this is consistent with what we've learned about David. And then that brings us to the second, the other question that we need to settle this morning, which is, okay, but how is this consistent with the gospel of free grace? How can David... Talk about God saving him as a reward for his righteousness without contradicting what Scripture says plainly elsewhere, which is that God does not save us as a reward for our righteousness. Instead, we're saved by divine mercy. Again, what gives? The first thing I'm going to say here is, Christian, behold your Savior. Before we get to David's life, before we get to your life and mine, let's bask in Christ's life. Behold Jesus here. Because it was true of Jesus Christ, first and foremost and finally, like no one else before him or after him, that he lived a life of perfect devotion to his father, and his father loved him and vindicated him for it. Behold Jesus in what David says about these verses. Jesus could say it about himself. John chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. John 10, verse 17. In other words, the Father loves me because I hold fast to the word, to the mission that he's given me. For this reason the Father loves me and will surely vindicate me in the end. Or Paul in Philippians 2, he says, Jesus was obedient to the point of death, therefore God has highly exalted him. Philippians 2. Or Hebrews chapter 5, where it says that Jesus prayed to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence, Hebrews chapter 5. So Jesus said this about himself, and then you have these other Bible passages that say it too. They add their amen. Jesus lived a life of perfect devotion to his father, and his father loved him and vindicated him for it. And unlike David, in Jesus' case, there were no exceptions. There's no comma except for the matter of. In Jesus' case, no exceptions, no aberrations, no sin stains at all. Utterly perfect, unblemished righteousness from start to finish to the core of his being. And God, his God, his Father, rewarded him for it, vindicated him as the servant that he was. So when you read these verses, 21 down through 25, before you get to David, before you get to your life and mine, go to Christ, because there he is. And make no mistake, that is gospel. That's grace. To think that God should give us a Savior like that and then reward, honor that Savior with eternal life that that Savior then turns and shares with us, that's gospel, that's grace. And so we start there, we fix our eyes on Christ and beholding Him, we can see, oh, we're not, we're not retreating from the gospel of grace here. Here is the Savior of the gospel before our eyes. So we can start there, but then we can keep going. Because we do need to keep going to David's life and yours and mine. It was also true of David. And it's also true of us. As those who are united with Christ by faith, it's also true of us. That yes, in this world, we stand for God, and God delights in that, smiles on that, rewards that. And we should not shrink back, we should not retreat from the truth, from the testimony that yes, that's true of us now as the Christian church. I think this will help. Toward the end of our passage, there's one verse especially. That can serve as a very helpful key for unlocking all of this, and it's verse 28. Look again at verse 28. David says, You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. In other words, those who kneel down in humility before God, and that includes faith in Him and faithfulness. Unto him, God reaches down and lifts them up. And really, what David is saying about himself throughout this whole poem, in a way, it's an unpacking of that testimony. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. And that verse, verse 28, that shouldn't throw us. That shouldn't surprise us. That's a running theme in Scripture. You can read it all over the place in the Bible. Old Testament and New. Even if you just go back to the beginning of 1 Samuel, remember Hannah? And her prayer, that beautiful prayer in 1 Samuel 2. She testified to this. She said, God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Or Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3 says the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous toward the scorners he is scornful but to the humble he gives favor the wise will inherit honor but fools get disgrace proverbs 3 <clears throat> Flipping to the gospels Jesus said this Matthew 23 Jesus said whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted And then you keep going, James said it as well, Peter said it as well, In James 4, 1 Peter 5, those two men quoting that Proverbs passage, Proverbs 3. This is all over the Bible, it's not just 2 Samuel 22. Those who humble themselves before God, and that includes faith in him and faithfulness unto him, God delights in that. God smiles on that. He honors that. He rewards that. Whether in this life or in the life to come, God's going to honor that. And the reason why that's perfectly compatible with the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace, is that it's God's grace that works that humility into our lives in the first place. We don't take credit for this, we don't pat ourselves on the back for being so humble which, of course, would be the end of humility. No, the humility of faith and faithfulness that God delights in and honors, it's his work in us in the first place. He's simply taking delight in what he himself has accomplished in us, and there's no self-righteousness in that. And we need to say this as well. Here's a, one more, I hope, helpful clarifying word. This particular aspect of divine grace that's on display here, God working in us so that we side with him and and stand for him, and he smiles on that and rewards that, that is one aspect of divine grace. But that's not the whole story of divine grace. It's also the case that God deals with us mercifully when we have not humbled ourselves before Him and taken a stand for Him. That's true as well. There's one facet of God's grace that's on display here in this poem. But make no mistake, this poem is not trying to traverse the entire terrain of divine grace. So even as we read this poem, we bear it in mind, at least in the backs of our minds, that it's also true that God brought us back to himself when we had wandered far away. David's not talking about that here, but it's true. That's grace too. And we also bear it in mind that it's also true that day after day God bears with us and forgives us when we fail him, when we haven't shown ourselves to be the humble people of God that we ought to be. David's not talking about that here, but that's true. That's grace too. This is one of the many reasons why David's example in the Bible is so valuable for us. David knew God's grace in so many different ways. And all of these different ways ought to ring true in our experience. On the one hand, yes, he experienced grace like this. 2 Samuel 22. He stood for God and God honored it. On the other hand, he also experienced grace when he committed adultery and murder. And God forgave him. And even lovingly chastened him. Friends, there are so many facets to the brilliant jewel of God's grace. Let's not be afraid to turn that jewel and delight in every single one of them. Don't forget to turn the jewel. Don't be so transfixed by one facet that you never turn it. And gaze upon the others. So what does this mean for us today? Christian, with all humility, seek the grace of God that more and more you might side with him and stand for him and then look to him for the honor that he's pleased to bestow. There's nothing self-righteous or self-absorbed about that. Maybe it will be some blessing that God's pleased to bring your way in this life as a result of your obedience. Maybe so. Maybe not. Maybe it'll be some crown that he places on your head in the life to come. That could be too. But we'll let him take care of that. Ours is to seek his grace and find it and show it and magnify it and delight in the staggering thought that he delights in it too all the while with your eyes on Jesus, the Son of David, who went first. Humility indeed. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for Christ. You rewarded him according to his blamelessness, the cleanness of his hands. He was obedient unto death. Therefore, you highly exalted him. We rejoice in him. Our eyes are trained on him. Our faith, our hope, our love are in him, in Christ. And we thank you now that you are reproducing this this in our own experience. So now in prayer, we would follow through. We would practice what was just preached. We seek your grace. That we might be those more and more in a world like this who show ourselves to be those who stand for you and who delight in your delight in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.